recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 42 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on social, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels as well. And you can get our newsletter, prlawpodcast.club. You and you know we're kind of winding down over here in Hong Kong because we've got the Chinese New Year holiday coming up. Uh, but what's it like uh, back where you are? Well, um, funny enough, Cam, we made some dumplings for dinner tonight. Oh, I really? Made them from scratch, from scratch, my friend. What What did you have in them? Well, um, we we did we did some vegan ones. Um, so you know, no no meat, but I did them mm-hmm. with uh, some some tofu, some scallions. Yeah, some, I love scallions, uh, some spinach, and uh, a little bit of little bit of celery, and then some uh, some really 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 good chili oil hmm. and uh, dried bean curd. They were, uh, you know, then I pan fried them and steamed them, and nice, good. Yeah, that say. sounds like, that sounds pretty legit. Yeah, uh, we you know we went for Peking duck actually yesterday uh, at one of the one of the Beijing restaurants in Hong Kong, and it was it was fantastic. Like. I don't have that much anymore. When I used to live in Beijing, like I, I went for, you know, Chinese food or Beijing food all the time. Um, and just not so much here. I don't even know why. Like there's great food here from from everywhere. But um, it was sure yeah, a nice treat. Can you, can you describe to our listeners what legit Peking duck is like? Because it, it really is something. And if you ever have the opportunity, listeners yeah. out there, you really should. You should jump on it. It's fantastic. So I guess it really depends how familiar people are with it. But like most people don't know that you actually eat it with your hands, kind of. Like like it comes to you and it's sliced and you've got to have the skin that's a bit crispy and a little bit of fat on there with the meat. But you actually sort of put it into a, a very thin kind of papery, um, what would you call it, Ewan? Not like a crepe kind of, but you put it in there with some some vegetables, some cucumber, um, and some some sauce, and sort of wrap it up like it's a tortilla or something, and uh, and eat it that way. And it's it's um it's good. It's really good. Yeah, they're 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 very small. These sort of little morsels that you sort of wrap by hand, um, but they're absolutely delicious. Yeah, that's nice. Um, that would have been nice to have had with my dumplings. <laughs> yeah, they would have gone well together. I think. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askus at prlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askus at prlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. So you and coming up, I'm actually going to talk about the announcement this week from Amazon that um, founder and CEO Jeff Bezos is going to step aside uh, as chief executive. I find those announcements fascinating from a communications perspective. Um, but before we hit that, let's uh, let's see what you've got on deck this week. Yeah, I'm talking about online harassment cams. So, uh, a big know, we, problem. We've talked about 
Yeah, absolutely. Right. We've talked about doxing and cancel culture and online abuse on this show before. And obviously it's an issue that's not going away. Uh, you know, I was looking at a, a 2017 study from the, the Pew Research Center. You know, I found that roughly 40 percent of Americans have personally experienced online harassment. Mm. 62% considered a major problem and 18% have been subjected to severe forms of online harassment. So things like physical threats, sexual harassment, stalking, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the numbers here in Canada, Cam, they're, they're, they're quite similar. So, you know, as you can probably guess with more people at home over the course of the pandemic, incidents of, of online harassment, you know, particularly through social media, they've, they've increased. And, you know, this is also an issue in employment contexts as well, right? Where employees harassing colleagues or former colleagues or, or their employer in online contexts. And you're sort of left in this situation of, well, what's my remedy? What can I, what can I do? Um, yeah, you know, the, the, yeah, no, I was going to, I was going to ask, um, this ties in with sort of, uh, an article that I featured last week on the podcast in the check this out segment on exactly this sort of cyber bullying or cyber reputation damage. Um, I don't know if you read that Ewan, but it's very similar to what, what you were talking about. And just for our, our listeners sake, it was uh, a very disgruntled, uh, woman, uh, extremely angry at sort of some people she felt had wronged her in her life and went to extreme measures online to really destroy people's uh, reputations. And it's a, it's a real serious problem with real serious consequences. You're, you're absolutely right. And uh, yeah, I'm going to talk about a particular case and why I think the, the decision that came out of it is really interesting mm-hmm. and could hopefully you know, take us in the right direction in terms of how the, the courts can address these issues. So, you know, I mean, looking at the U S I mean, they have already some sort of steps to address this. So, you know, California, for example, I mean, California probably has some of the strictest state laws around online harassment. Um, so, you know, built into their definition of stalking, for example, you know, that law goes on to specifically include electronic communication devices. So phones, computers, et cetera, Mm -hmm. Texas, Arizona, Missouri, you know, a number of other States, they've also incorporated language into their state laws to address online harassment. Uh, But here in Canada, you know, things are, things are a little bit different and typically online harassment has been addressed through defamation intrusion upon seclusion, but nothing specifically addressing the online harassment issue. That is That's until surprising. the end of That's surprising well, to well me. it is. And and it is and it isn't, Cam, because typically through, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into a long um, explanation about tort law, but anybody who's been to law school will tell you torts is one of the sort of foundational classes that every law student takes in, in the first year. And, and a tort really in common law jurisdiction, it's just a civil wrong, Cam. So we're just talking about where someone suffers a loss or harm that results in legal liability for the person who commits that mm-hmm. wrong. And when you bring a tort claim, you're typically looking for a civil remedy. And by a civil remedy, we mean money. So right. things like invasion of privacy, intentional infliction of mental distress, negligence, these sorts of things. These are torts. So usually, you know, in Canada, we've been able to sort of address it through defamation or intrusion upon seclusion. But there was this case that that came to the Ontario courts recently, and the decision was just released at the end of January, where 
it was so extreme that we were left with the situation where we really needed to sort of revise the law. At least that was the position that the that the judge took. So in this case, we're talking a defendant's nearly 20 years, Cam, a 20-year campaign of Jeez. online harassment and defamation. So, you know, the plaintiffs in this case, they were lawyers, a former employer, its successor company, and members and associates of, uh, you know, the primary targets. And the plaintiff alleged that the defendant posted allegations of professional misconduct, fraud, sexual criminality. Hang on. Just, spanning these 20 just, years. Just Sorry, to go ahead. be clear, when you say the plaintiffs, who, who, who is the plaintiff? Is it a firm or is it a person or a collection of people? The plaintiff is a person, an individual, one lawyer. And is that right, or is it? No, 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 not a not a lawyer. The, the 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 plaintiffs. Sorry, excuse me. The defendant is one individual. The plaintiffs. Yes, it was a series of plaintiffs, and the plaintiffs included lawyers, a former employer, and its successor company. So there was a whole whack load of people okay. that were plaintiffs in this litigation, all going after, all suing this one defendant. Okay, and. You know, the plaintiffs cam just to tell you how extreme this was, the plaintiffs presented evidence to the court that included over 3000 posts across 77 websites mm-hmm. over a span of 20 years. So we're not talking about one or two posts of defamatory con- you know, conduct. We're talking about really, really serious long term online abuse <clears throat> and the court. You know, it took the position that traditional defamation, it doesn't really address something that severe in an online conduct. So what was interesting about this case is that a Canadian court, this this Ontario decision, it adopted the American test for harassment in internet communications. So effectively, we looked to what was going on in the U.S. to see how they were addressing it. And, and the justice in this case, Justice Corbett, effectively incorporated that U.S. test. And in doing so, he created a new tort in Ontario. So you can now sue somebody um, for this very, very specific tort of online harassment, harassment and internet communications. So it's a really big step for the law in Ontario. And I suspect that, you know, as we've talked about before, Cam, when we have these sorts of decisions in the courts, they have a ripple effect, Right. So this isn't just going to be an Ontario thing. I think that courts in the U.S. will likely look to this decision to further reinforce and strengthen their own laws around the issue. We'll probably see the other courts across Canada uh, address this issue and possibly incorporate this language and then other common law jurisdictions. So, you know, Great Britain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really kind of a, a cool and interesting step where the law is finally finally starting to catch up with some of the tech. Yeah, and that's really late too. I mean, this has been a problem for more than a decade now um, already. I'm surprised it's sort of taken that long. And I know even in the United States, I mean, obviously I don't have the the laws out, you know, rolled out in front of me here, but I mean, I know that, that in general, people are not very happy with how this works down there either, uh, even though they do have some, some, some laws on the books. But um, I mean, th- this has been a huge issue for a lot of people. I, I don't know you. And if you recall the very public um, battle uh, between a conservative star uh, and Carlos Maza from Vox from just 2019, uh, the, the conservative star was Steven Crowder uh, who had a very popular YouTube channel and they really went back and forth and Crowder was um, 
using some horrific terms to sort of uh, poke fun at Maza's uh, sexual orientation and a lot of other things that became a, a massive issue. And he felt it was bullying, but there was almost nothing that could, that could be done and, and not much was done about that. And that's really unfortunate. I mean, this this happens a lot. This isn't an isolated thing, sort of as you mentioned. And, you know, as per that article, which I, I mentioned last week, and I'll, I'll put again in the show notes uh, today, this can go on over many years. And there's so many ways that you can attack somebody online. I almost don't want to go through them on this podcast because it's like a how-to, but um, there's a lot. And you can really do some serious damage sitting behind your monitor with a keyboard uh, for somebody else or to somebody else. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, this is going to be something that the courts are going to continue to address going forward. I mean, the only thing I don't like um, about this decision is that we're talking about a really, really stringent test. So it's a really high threshold before you can sort of, um, you know, rely on that harassment and internet communications tort. So I suspect that as the years pass and more and more cases rely on it um, and more people sue on that basis, that we're going to see sort of an expansion of the scope, perhaps a watering down of the the, the threshold um, to meet before you can before you can rely on it. Um, but again, what I'm interested in is to see what happens in other jurisdictions. I think they will look to this case um, just as, you know, the Ontario courts looked to to cases in the U.S. And this is what's kind of neat about, you know, common law jurisdictions, Cam. We can we can kind of look to other countries and other jurisdictions to inform how how we develop our own law, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it will be interesting to see how this 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 works out because, you know, it's not easy. I mean, I think we can all it's like pornography. You know it when you see it in terms of internet bullying. Like you, you can identify it when it's in front of you, but it's kind of difficult sometimes to to define in the abstract. And I mean, there are a lot of websites out there like Glassdoor, for instance, where you would, you know, review your boss or the company that you work at. Um, and, and I can see certain people sort of raising concerns about that because of the reputational damage that could cause. But where then do you draw that line between, you know, this is a legit review of you? I mean, even on Uber, for instance, like, you have as a rider a score and drivers are rating you the customer. <laughs> and if you're problematic, they won't pick you up. Um, so th- there's, there's a huge scale here from like extreme abuse on one end to sort of milk toast review on the other. Uh, and, and it's going to probably take some time to figure out what things belong where and what's harassment and what's not. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is always an issue in an employment context as well. I mean, obviously, as you can assume, there's or imagine there's no shortage of employees who who argue that they've been harassed by their employers. So, you know, where do you sort of draw that line um, between sort of a subjective perspective of an employee who may feel as though they've been harassed by their employer? But then when you sort of look at it a little bit closer, you realize it doesn't really kind of rise to that to that level, um, there really is sort of a, a sliding scale in terms of the severity of of these cases. And you know, harassment, be it in an employment context or an online context, you know, sometimes it can be one or two isolated cases. And then, obviously, as this case demonstrates, Cam, um, sometimes it can be uh, thousands over a twenty-year period. Yeah, absolutely. And really quickly, just from. Um, uh 
a sort of a communications angle, I guess, or, or how you can address this if it happens to you. I mean, obviously, if you're being harassed either online or off, you want to go to the police uh, right away. And in terms of finding things online, I mean, um, there are agencies that help people with this, uh, and it's sometimes done in PR as well. I touched on it last week, um, but you know, when you Google somebody and you see the results, um, you have to keep in mind those results are different for everybody who Googles something. N no one's seeing the same page of results when they search the same term um, because it's based on your search history and who you are and your Gmail and all kinds of other things. Um, but that said, uh, you can bury sometimes some of those negative articles or that slanderous material um, by uh, you know, creating new web pages. That's usually what's often done or new social media accounts with, with your name featured prominently that ends up just rising. Those pages can rise in the, in the, in the results and push some of the, this more damaging stuff aside, but that's really just a temporary and very clumsy way to kind of handle it. Ultimately, um, this kind of material has to be pulled down and there's very little incentive so far for, for, for technology companies to do so. Uh, they say they're, they're not responsible for anything posted on their, on their platform. So this is a battle that's going to continue. No doubt. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. I mentioned uh, earlier that I was going to talk about Jeff Bezos this week, um, and you know, I think, you know, people don't usually follow Amazon's corporate news closely, but that was a big announcement um, that he's going to step aside as the chief executive uh, from the company that he founded, you know, almost 30 years ago. It was 1994, Ewan, that Amazon started. Um, so it's it's been a, a very long ride. And uh, here's a, a really quick report from Bloomberg, New York City. Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos, is stepping down as CEO to become executive chairman later this year. Here's company CFO Brian Olsofsky. I will uh, reiterate that Jeff is not leaving. He is uh, getting a new job. Yeah, he's not leaving. He's getting a new job. That's a really important quote, Ewan, which I'm going to come back to uh, in a second. But I have to say, and and maybe this is, I don't know if I call it a guilty pleasure or, or what, but I, I find these kinds of executive leadership changes or recruitments or reorgs quite interesting from a communications perspective because they're delicate and they're inevitable. I mean, he can't be CEO forever. So you knew this was coming and there's so many different things that work into it. Um, Ewan. And I think, you know, among those is the company really needs from a communications perspective to have a very keen understanding of their market position, who their audience is, competitors, sentiment out there just about the company uh, in general and how the outgoing leader and the incoming leader, um, are perceived. Did you catch any of this last week? Yeah, I mean, I was following it along because it's funny you played that quote. You know, I I, I heard that as well, and I was thinking, well, what what does that mean? He's getting a new job. I mean, it's his company. It sounds like somebody's just sort of appointed a role for him. Um, it was all a little bizarre the way it was sort of presented or at least that's how I saw it. Yeah. Well, he is. Um, again, I don't know how our if our listeners are 
familiar with sort of board structures, but he's going to be the executive chairman. So he will be involved. So in Hong Kong, for instance, Ewan, the listing rules here is you, you, you can't have an executive chairman and a CEO. The chairman has to be non-executive, meaning sort of just overseeing, um, you know, at, at, a, at some distance the company. But it works a little bit differently in the U.S. That's sort of a di- division of power over here. But in the U.S., you can be an executive chairman, meaning theoretically kind of involved in in day-to-day if you want to be. So it isn't actually that big of a change when you think about it. There's going to be a CEO who's dealing with a lot of the day-to-day stuff and the and the day-to-day rigors, but Bezos is still going to be quite involved sort of in, in what the company's doing. And I'll go into that little breakdown um, a little bit later. But But here's you know, Amazon's story. So as they're approaching this, I mean, obviously they had a succession plan in place. There were a couple of candidates from reports going back uh, a while, but, but these are some of the things that, that the communications team would have looked at about the story of the company. So the first is that, you know, Bezos is the only CEO since the company started. So it's his company. I mean, he's given a lot of credit for what Amazon is today, which is massive in virtually every field. Um, and then number two, obviously, there's going to be nervousness about the about the future of the company with somebody new in charge. That's totally natural. It has nothing to do really with the incoming guy. It's just there's only been one leader. We don't know what Amazon looks like with a different CEO. It's never been done. Um, so there's going to be nervousness, and your shareholders are going to be nervous about that. So that that's important to note. Um, the third one, Amazon AWS, is is their biggest money maker. That's their cloud services provider, I guess. Um, and they it's the cash cow for Amazon. I mean, almost the whole internet runs off Amazon's servers, so they make a ton of money uh, that way. So that's important to note. And then when you're looking for a successor, obviously you. In this kind of situation, you're not really going to look outside the company. Because when you look at those points I just mentioned, one thing that you're going to want to do is allay any anxiety or fear over this change by talking about continuity, that nothing fundamental is going to change here. We're going in the same direction. It's the same team. Bezos is still going to be involved. All of this is meant to calm investors. And then, the fifth point really is ideally you would like to have somebody who does understand or has direct uh, involvement with the highest revenue portion of the business, which is uh, AWS. So, you know, they would have looked at all of those things uh, on the announcement. Some of those probably deal with the actual sort of recruitment or succession plan. Some of that deals with, with the communications, but Amazon did take an interesting route to this. Um, the first thing I noticed, you know, which was kind of interesting is they did bundle this news with its um, financial results announcement. Companies do that. You don't have to do that. You can. Um, that would have been a communications decision as well. And it may have been to kind of downplay it a bit because Amazon sort of, you know, had a, an outstanding results announcement. And so this was just part of that rather than the entire focus. Um, so Cam, is that just sort of, is that just sort of carrot and stick? kind of kind of logic of you know we'll give them we'll give them the carrot and then we'll hit them with the stick at the same time and in trying to sort of dull the blow is that sort of the logic behind that that thinking i wouldn't really call it carrot and stick because you're not trying to entice anything but they it would be to lessen the focus like anytime if they came out and put out a press release saying jeff bezos is stepping down that that's a that's a that's a big announcement and and you know all of the attention will be focused on that when you put it out with your financial results and your financial results are very strong, 
there's several things for the media to cover that day. And obviously, Bezos is going to get a lot of attention regardless, because him stepping aside is big news, regardless of what the financial announcements are. But it will be a bit less, because there's other news coming out of the company that day. So it just sort of dulls the news a little bit. So the new CEO is a guy named Andy Jassy, and he has been with Amazon almost since the very beginning. Um, So I want to go to Kara Swisher. Uh, We've played clips of her before. Uh, She's with the New York Times, but she was interviewed on CNBC about this change and had some uh, interesting takes on it. What do we need to know, first and foremost, about Andy Jassy? What do investors need to know about him? Well, I think he's been there the whole time. I think that's one thing you have to keep in mind, much like Satya Nadella at Microsoft, who has been an incredibly successful CEO. He's had his career at Amazon. He came there after going to Harvard Business School when he was a very young man think that way, that he's been part of the, you know, one of the things that people tend to focus on, whether it's Steve Jobs or or Bill Gates, is that they're the reason everything goes up and to the right. And obviously they have teams just like Tim Cook has done rather well for Apple, despite all the questions of whether he could do that and the stock's never been more valuable. And so, you know, Andy's been part of the team that brought Amazon to where it is and especially running AWS, which is the most profitable part of the company by far. I think it represents 12% of the revenues and 62% of the profits. And so it's it's been a critically important business that, that they started from ground zero with Andy doing it in kind of a skunk works back in uh, early in the early 2000s. So she really puts it into context, you know, why, why this works for Amazon. And I think they did a good job, Ewan, overall on this, the way that they rolled this out. And I think they did allay a lot of the fears. The stock did bounce around a little bit. It was initially up a bit, and then it came down a bit on this news. But overall, it wasn't a big shock. And I think, you know, the key parts here is, you know, number one, in the communications, the company did take care to explain that this isn't a fundamental change. And I go back to that quote that you mentioned, Ewan, about him just doing a different job. Um, you know, it's him. It's, it was it was the CFO saying, look, he was our chief executive. Now he's our executive chairman. He's still sitting in that boardroom. He's still part of the board. He's still active day to day in the company. So, you know, don't don't worry. Everything's OK. He's here you know, his hands on the wheel to some degree. And then the guy coming in is a continuity of what has existed before. So I wanted to raise this just because I did such a such a good job uh, rolling this out. I mean, is there any way that he can be a bit of a, you know, lame duck leader in that regard? I mean, if you've got if you've got Bezos still sitting in the room, I mean, I'm not suggesting he shouldn't be. um, But if he's still sitting in the room, and he's been calling the shots since day one, how do you pull rank as, as the CEO when you know you've got uh, you've got that guy sort of sitting to your left or to your right? Yeah, and that is going to really be up to Bezos to manage because um, it's a legitimate point. I think Kara Swisher mentioned uh, Microsoft and Satya Nadella. I think that that's such a good example. Um, you know, Bill Gates. Uh, also was on the board still. Satya Nadella is the CEO. And he's really struck out on his own and done his own thing. And Gates is no longer on the board now. It's fully sort of Nadella's company. And, and that's, you know, that's Bill Gates also sort of recognizing it's time to sort of pass this on to somebody else. I do think Bezos understands that. But but how it's going to actually work out day to day, we'll see. You know, some other big changes are even Bob Iger at Disney. Um, you know, he, he passed uh, the baton 
uh, last year as well, but he's also still on the board and still involved in things. So I, I do think this can work. I think this is a sort of a common transition. So it's sort of like putting training wheels on. Um, you know, you've got the original team there in case you need them and they can help you as you sort of come up to speed. But ultimately, um, it's, it will be challenging uh, for Jassy. And, uh, you know, hopefully the company sort of gives him a vote of confidence and, and make sure that it's understood that he really is in charge. Right. So, I mean, in terms of the timing, Cam, when you're sort of sitting down with the executives as a PR communications guy, I mean, how do you determine the when in a situation like this? I mean, clearly this would have been something that they'd been, that Bezos had been thinking about for, for some time and likely had discussed with the board. When do you, how do you decide the when to pull the trigger on something like this? So to be clear, this, this would be a business decision, right? And a decision by the board under most circumstances. I mean, Bezos is stepping down. So obviously he's, it's also his decision to do so. So the timing over when to make these management changes or executive team changes would be decided by the board or the executive team, not communications. Communications would figure out how to convey that information in a way that leaves the company looking as good as it can or have the announcement in the best possible light. And so that's where you would sit down. And like I said, at the beginning, you would say, what are the sensitivities around this? You know, it's the first time we're going to have a new CEO. Bezos has been the only guy who's been in charge here and he won't be in charge now. And how are people going to feel about that? And it is that understanding of your investors and about the public and that your customers and your suppliers and your contractors and everybody like that, you know, what are their concerns? What are they going to think when they hear this news? And then you sort of work backwards and say, how can we make sure that when we talk about this, that it doesn't cause alarm and that it looks like it is just a, a very routine run of the mill transition that all companies do. And we're going to be fine. And the guy taking over is really good. And he's been there a long time and he understands the culture and he understands the business. And he understands the products and he understands the services and he understands sort of how the company operates. And so all of these messages are meant to, to, to calm the market. And, and that's where the communications team comes in to assist with that. But on the timing, I mean, big picture, like I say, that is determined by, by, by management or the executive team. But once they determine it, yeah, then there's going to be a window of like, when is the best time to announce this to the public? And and that's a little different. They, they would have probably some, some, some things to consider there. Even things as simple as like in normal times, like the, the, the CEO's travel schedule, for instance, I mean, not many are traveling now, but these things, they're part of this decision-making process and, and, and when and how these announcements should happen. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Um, one thing I want to mention you and, uh, just before we go is uh, clubhouse. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with this social network, but it's got some, benefits to to communicators so i wanted to mention it briefly but have you heard about it you and are you familiar with it uh not until you messaged me about it earlier this week yeah <laughs> it's like clubhouse clubhouse said i quickly started looking it up i read the wikipedia page and a couple of articles <laughs> but prior to that cam no i uh I, I had never heard of it well and i i have been on it for a while but i i am um as i'm getting older i'm less um I'm not going to pump up these services right off the bat. I think like I, I used to get very excited about these kinds of things. And um, 
So I have been on it for a while. It's been interesting. It's it's basically, if you haven't heard about it, it's a it's a it's a new kind of social network, but it's based on audio. I think trying to capitalize a little bit on the podcast game. Um, it has been around for more than a year, uh, I believe. It's still invitation only uh, service, but basically you can you can join Clubhouse and create a room. So you can say, you know, this room is going to talk about communications and PR. Um, and you can go in there and invite people in who you know, or it actually just gets listed kind of on the home screen. And people who see it can pop in and listen. And it comes with some moderation tools. So, you know, you as the person who created the room can control who speaks, for instance, you call them on stage. And so you could appoint certain people to come up on stage with you. And that means that they can talk and interject as they wish. And then you can sort of put them back down into the audience where they cannot interject anymore. So there's a lot of control. Um, and it's great for, yeah, having an audience asking questions because you can sort of moderate that and people aren't jumping in um, on top of each other. But we did run a, a bit of a test on this last week. Um, it was a, a Chinese language uh, chat and an interview with uh, a young founder of a company in China. And, you know, it was it exceeded my expectations because it uh, it's quite a because it's invitation only. It's still very, I would say, high level. There's not a lot of, you know, Trump conversations and stuff on there. It's mostly business Um and learning and things like that, science sort of stuff. Um, a lot of those kinds of topics that are quite interesting. Actually, there's been some really, really interesting discussions on there. And just even in the past week, I've left it on while I'm working um, because there might be a conversation on some subject that I'm interested in. Um, and I'll have a, have a listen to it. And then if you want to ask a question, you can, you can do so. So why am I bringing this up? Communicators. I think, you know, when we look at how we're disseminating messages uh, and how we get our messages out there, uh, this is not a panacea. It's not, um, you know, anything that's going to fundamentally change how you work, but it is another tool. It's another platform. It's just another quiver in your arsenal um, that you could potentially use. And I think in particular for events or for community driven events um, and for basically having people come and join and listen and ask questions, because putting something like that together at a company is kind of complicated, a little bit costly, you know, if you want to do this on your own. Uh, but the way that uh, Clubhouse is set up, uh, it's something that can be done at very low to no cost now. Uh, and that's kind of a boon, I think, for communicators. So I, I expect to see a lot more along those lines uh, in the weeks ahead. So I will mention it as it as it evolves and changes. And if anybody does need an invite, I still have a few left. Um, you can message me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Jonan High on there. Uh, and I can see if, if uh, I've got four, I think. So the first four people to message me, I'll send them your way. But Oh, wait a minute. Um, uh, I, I, you're, <laughs> oh, yes, right. <laughs> you're not on you. Okay. I have three. I have three. Three. Okay. okay. All right. So I just want to make sure that I was uh, covered there. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa. Hey, check this out. No, no. Wait, wait. Oh, check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in Law podcast. All right, dog. What do you got? Uh, well, Cam, I got my uh, my first record review of the year. Oh, okay. What is it? Yeah, or recommendation rather. It's uh, it's an album called Ignorance, which is uh, the fifth LP by a band called The Weather Station. Um, the Weather Station is the project of Tamara Lindman, uh, who's actually from Toronto. 
this record, uh, you know, I guess it, it would probably best be best defined as folk, but I, you know, I think that really sort of oversimplifies it. It's such a rich, really exceptionally well-produced record and it, it rewards repeated listens. Um, you know, I think Lindman's voice, particularly in its lower register, it, it, it really commands your attention, Cam. It's sort of hard to describe. You just have to kind of jump in and listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, her lyrics are just sharp throughout, as are the string arrange- arrangements, which she did herself. Um, the band is fantastic. I mean, she uses two drummers, some great piano work, electric guitars, you know, even a saxophonist. Um just a real fantastic record cover to cover. And, you know, I know it's only February, but, you know, mark my words, Cam, I suspect you're going to see this record on a lot of critics uh, best of lists at the end of the year. I'm glad you mentioned these because, yeah, I need some uh, I need some recommendations. So this is something I'll throw on this week while I'm working. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. Well worth your time. What do you got? Cool. Um I've mentioned this before on the show, Ewan. Um, I'm kind of interested or fascinated by this whole QAnon thing. And not the, not the conspiracy theory itself, but just like, how, how does this stuff spread? Like, how, what is the psychology around this? Um, the New York Times has published another article um, called The QAnon Delusion Has Not Loosened Its Grip. And that's true, uh, even though, you know, on, on January 20th, the inauguration of Joe Biden, that was the day that they were expecting the storm or the Great Awakening, um, and there would be mass arrests made, you know, of, of elected leaders on that day didn't happen. It hasn't weakened the conspiracy theory at all. And it's, I'm, I'm going to recommend this article because it, it looks at it in some detail, along with an episode of On the Media, which also... Uh, and the podcast is a podcast and radio show out of WNYC. And it also looks at this same subject and how this has really evolved since inauguration day and how there's people that are really, I mean, they're, they're in on this fully. And um, I, I, I don't know how it's going to be broken. This spell, I assume just over time, but um, it's um, it's both scary and harrowing and, also sort of it's got that train wreck quality where when I see an article on QAnon or conspiracy theories, now I take a look at it just because I kind of can't look away. Um, and again, from a communications perspective, like that's what this is, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's communications that's spreading an idea and a thought to people that is so compelling or so believable to them that they buy into it. And learning how that works is really fascinating to me. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Um, actually, on that subject, I'll throw an article um, in as well. One I read earlier this week in uh, the New Republic called "QAnon and the Cultivation of the American Right," and it's also a fabulous, fabulous long form article on the same subject. Um, you just you just made me think of it in talking about the the New York Times piece. Um, yeah, this one's well worth your time too. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh... <laughs> It's not, they're not optimistic reads, but, uh, interesting nonetheless. Anything else you want to, you want to chime in on? I know it, it is Super Bowl time. I mean, by the time we, we publish this, the Super Bowl will be over, but, uh, anything else you want to, want to mention before we wrap this up? No, uh, I, I think that's it. I guess I, I, you know, it's Sunday night here, so maybe I'll go throw the game on. Um, it will be the only football game I'll, I'll watch this year. 
as, as I, is sort of typical, I'm not a big American football guy, but, uh, you're not alone you know, in that. I, I think a lot of people are the same. Yeah. But you know, it'd be, uh, I'll try and catch the weekend, the halftime show and, um, you know, give, give, uh, give big props to, to Toronto. It's pretty cool. We got, we got representation in the halftime show. I'm, I'm trying to think if that's, I don't think that's ever happened before. Maybe it has, but not that I can think of. I, uh, you know, the foreign correspondents club in Hong Kong, they show the, uh, the Super Bowl every, every year, uh, because it's a Monday morning in Hong Kong. So as we record this, it is Monday morning here. And, uh, yeah, it's fun. It's actually really fun. There's often Super Bowl parties in Asia this year, a little bit different because of the pandemic, obviously, but there's nothing like showing up early in the morning to a bar where there's either a buffet or some breakfast specials. And then you have your first beer watching the Super Bowl. It's a very, very unique experience. But well, I guess they, do. they don't have chicken wings at the foreign correspondence club. Do they? I, I don't think so. Those are now off the table for sure. Right. No pandemic right. food. <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining us again this week. Don't miss a show. You can subscribe in your podcast app of choice or to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels. And we're on social, of course, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, and you can get our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewing Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.